Um, If you'd like to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 8. Uh, 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women who will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, nor a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy full of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation without outsiders, uh, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand your word. Help us to be able to read it simply and to simply obey. And Father, we pray that you would continue to shape us as your household, that you would order us according to your goodwill. Lord, that we might be set free to be the men and women you have called us to be and to shine your light. So Lord, please go before us now and change us according to your glory purposes and for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. As a church, we've been going through 1 Timothy, and one of the things in particular that we've been looking to see is what 1 Timothy has to say about organising ourselves as a church. We seek to order ourselves according to Scripture in a church meeting, probably the last one, we've started talking about elders and deacons. What does the Bible have to say about that? And so over the next few weeks, now that we've come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to think about eldership, pastor, elder. Today, I want to really think about what's the qualification for being an elder. This next week, to think about what is the work of an elder pastor. And then in the third week, given that we must all come one day before the judgment seat of Christ, what is the judgment that awaits an elder? What is the weight of that task? And so as we consider ourselves as a church... We must always remember that there's just one church 
That was a big thing of the Reformation. There's only one church ultimately. All those whom God has called who have come to express faith in Christ Jesus. And that's seen and unseen. That's going all the way back to Abel, all the way back to King David, all the way back to Mary today and whoever's to come, all who come to faith in Jesus Christ, saved by grace alone through faith alone, is the church. There's only one church. But through time and in different places, there is a visible representation of the church as we have here in Chapel Street. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ are saints. We are all saints. There are not just some who are saints, all who have come to put faith in Christ and have been sanctified and made holy are saints. And so we gather here and the Bible exhorts us. It says the early church devoted themselves to gathering. Hebrews 10 tells us we should commit to the gathering, to coming together. We ought to prioritise the gathering, which means something needs to happen. It's not a random gathering, here one week, not here the next, or we just come and do our own thing. No, God is intentional to organise us together to be a church, to be a household, the household of God on Chapel Street. And so as we come together, we see in the Bible that one of the purposes that we have is that we build each other up. The way that we are built up, the Bible says, is through the ministry of the word. We've got to think rightly if we're going to live rightly. And in the end, we all have something to do. When you read in Ephesians 4.12, the ministry of the word is to be done so as to equip the saints, all those who belong to the Lord, for works of service or for their ministry. So, there's not just one minister or two ministers in a church. Everyone who is a saint who professes faith in Christ is a minister of God. The question is, what is your role as a minister? Some people will have a role as a minister to be an elder or a pastor. Some people have a role as a minister to be a deacon. A.W. Pink, you might have heard of, but he makes the point clear. A mother who serves her family and brings up children for the glory of God, knowing that that's God's calling in her life, is just as faithful a minister as someone who goes overseas as a missionary to preach the gospel. We're all called to serve as God's ministers in whatever realm and role that he has. Those people who have been playing today have been doing a ministry. They have acted as ministers. And so we need to be organised. How will we come together, all us ministers, so as to be doing ministry? And in the Bible we see that God organises his church essentially with two offices. The office of an elder and of deacons. Elder and deacon. If you have your Bible there, you can flick forward. Titus isn't far away. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then you'll get to Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The appointment of elders. If you flick back to the opening verses of Philippians. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints... That's the church in that place, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi, with the overseers, that's the elders, and deacons. So gathering of saints, where God has, by his grace, appointed overseers and deacons. When you're in 1 Timothy, we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, 
Later in 1 Timothy, he refers to them as elders. Elders, overseers is the same office. And so the way God organises his household is often very simple. There are so many ways of how you can organise church. If you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll probably find lots of different books on how you can organise church. And they are so varied often because they have different ideas about what to do or because often they're influenced by the latest church growth or business principle that then tries to be sanctified and applied to the church. But if we come back to the Bible, which is what we should do and keep things simple, we are saints, we all have a ministry role and God appoints elders and deacons to help get us organised. The elders are those in the church who oversee the spiritual work of teaching, doctrine, the health of the church, the direction of the church. That is the role of the overseer or elder. They are men who are serving the church in that way. They're accountable before God to make sure that we are functioning healthily, to make sure that false teaching isn't creeping in, to make sure we're growing in love and knowledge, to make sure we are living lives that we ought to be living. But then there are also those who are deacons. And they have the role of overseeing also the spiritual work, but the spiritual work of practical demonstrations of love. In Acts, the leaders of the church appointed deacons. Stephen was one of them to make sure the practical works of love, of caring for the widows, was happening. So everyone had something to do. We all have to do practical works of love. But here in Timothy, we're going to be told, appoint some men to oversee to make sure, okay, all these different things are happening. And so we've got to keep remembering, it's not only elders or deacons who have a role, we all have a role. We all are ministers. And so today we want to zoom in on the office of elder. There are two offices, elder and deacons. Now the word elder, you've already had a hint that in the In 1 Timothy, elders are also referred to as overseers, but there is another term that is also used. Flick forward to 1 Peter. Often Hebrews is easier to find. It's just after Hebrews. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, chapter 3. And see if you can pick out the three ways that those who are appointed as elders to teach and lead in the church are referred to 1 Peter 3. I'll read it. 1 Peter 5, that will help. 1 Peter 5. So I exhort the elders among you as as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. So we see this office referred to as elders. In verse 2, it's a role of shepherding. And in verse 2, it's a role of oversight. And so that role in the church is sometimes referred to in the Bible as the elders or the overseers or the shepherds. It's the same role. Elder equals overseer equals shepherd. Now, I've got, I will put this up because I think some of us will find it more helpful than others, but we don't always use different terms. 
Often we'll use the term pastor rather than shepherd. Pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. So a spiritual shepherd, we often, in the, or in spiritual settings, use the word pastor. So in the Bible, the first column, presbyteros is the word. The Latin is presbyter. That's where the Presbyterians get their name from. In Old English, it became preost. Modern English became priest. So there's a confusion. You've got to be careful what you're referring to. So this is the Angl- Anglicans will say, that's the priest they're referring to that's come from presbyter. Not an Old Testament priest. Catholic priests are like Old Testament priests. So presbyter or elder are the terms you'll often hear for that office. The same office is all called episkopos. In Old English, that became biscop, bishop or overseer. So bishop or overseer is the same office. Poimeno or pastor, which becomes shepherd. So presbyter, elder, it's the same. Bishop, overseer is the same. Pastor, shepherd is the same. And then you put equals between all of it. So, old Baptist churches actually sometimes refer to their pastor as the bishop. We find that strange because we've got Anglican way of thinking. But in the old Baptist documents, to the overseer or the bishop amongst you. And so, over time in different denominations, these roles have come to have different, well, distinctions. But as you read the New Testament, it's just the same office with different terms because those terms give us information about what the role is. Overseer, oversees. Shepherd, think shepherding. Elder, think someone able to teach and understanding. And so we can take all that word, wordiness down. But the important thing, pastor, shepherd is the same as an elder or a presbyter is the same as an overseer or a bishop. And in the book of 1 Timothy, the terms that it essentially used are elder and overseer. Now, as we come down here, we've got to consider the qualifications. Who in the church may be appointed? So in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, as we've worked through, we've seen God created us male and female. God has given us roles by which we are to minister in life and to serve him. But we see, too, that when it comes to the leadership in the church, God has said that that ought come from amongst the men. It's not for any man, but that the men would be appointed if they are to be appointed as elders. And so this qualification we see, coming off verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. Teaching and having authority is the role of an elder, down to chapter one, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to this office of overseer, of having a teaching, leading role, he desires a noble task. Now, if you're putting a job application out, what do you start with? Sorry? Ask name. But then you probably start just describing all the skills you want, all the things you've got to be good at if you want this role. But notice as we work our way through this list, the majority of them are not essentially skills, they're character. Above reproach. So that's saying the man must be blameless, not knowing for wrongdoings. He doesn't have dodgy business practices. He doesn't fiddle the books. He pays his tax as he ought. His integrity is known. 
He must be above reproach. He lives a life that you've got to work really hard if you want to try and be suspicious of something because he even tries to live in a way so that you can't have any wrong ideas. Billy Graham used to have a practice where he would not be alone with a woman. Some people mock that even in the church. But that is being above reproach. Next it says, the husband of one wife, or literally one woman man. That's literally what it says. A straightforward reading would exclude a man who has been divorced, married multiple times, been adulterous or polygamous. He must be a man who has upheld marriage, known one wife and been faithful to her. Sober-minded. He's got to be someone who's level-headed. He doesn't swing from hot, and, hot to cold. Like you just don't know where on the pendulum he's going to be today if you were to come and meet him. You sort of know what to expect. Someone who doesn't just keep jumping on to the latest fads. Oh, we've got to try this as a church. Oh, we've got to... Someone who's sober-minded, he's level, he's temperate. Self-controlled. Similar idea. But he's sensible. Not given to flying off the rails. Not given to fits of rage. Not a slave to the flesh. He's got his act together in a spiritual sense. Respectable, a man of good behaviour, virtuous, decent, modest, well-ordered. Sixth, there's 15 of them. Six, hospitable, willing to care and provide for others in need, willing to have an open door. The word is literally love for stranger. So it's someone that doesn't just say, okay, I know you guys come into my house, but someone who will model and have an example of loving the other Loving those outside the church, loving those who are near and loving those afar. Someone who will be like Jesus exhorts us with the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hospitable. Seventh, able to teach. As we've seen from 1 Timothy, he has to have, be a man who understands the word, but not just understand it, willing to confront false teaching and doctrine in the life of the church. Someone who understands the word so as to be able to teach and instruct others in a way unto godliness and what it will be to live for God's glory. Not a drunkard. Well, literally not given to wine. Not given to is that idea of addiction. But it's more than just trying to think of the extremes of someone being an alcoholic. Because many of us, in one sense, are given to our coffee. Struggle to start a day if we can't have a coffee. There was an article recently about ministers who struggled to get going on a Sunday without their energy drinks. That's not good. Someone who is not dependent on any substance. They don't feel they have to have a lift by having whatever it is. Illicit, illegal or not. Someone who can depend upon God. Someone who can ask God for strength. Then it says not violent. Some of the older words have pugnacious. We don't hear that word very often. But it's someone who, as soon as you come, they're not going to put their fists up. Someone who gets defensive. Someone, if you've got to challenge them on something, you're not dreading, okay, we're in for a fight, if I even just raise that. Someone who's not violent. Someone who's not intimidating, not a bully. That's another way it's sometimes talked about. Doesn't have to keep trying to control things. And you'd have to say, even willing to be wronged. 
There are many things in the life of the pastor where the pastor elders might not get to do the things they want to do or whatever happens or even have things said about them that might not be accurate. You've got to be someone who doesn't have to fight that all the time. You're willing just to leave it with the Lord. To be an example like Jesus who is willing to endure whatever without having to rise up. But then this beautiful word to be gentle. A man who's mild, moderate, you feel safe around. Yet sadly, with some ways in the, probably the past 10 or 20 years, there has been a push to have young alpha male men trying to lead churches. It's not quite the image of gentleness. There's a whole different way of demonstrating strength and leadership. We don't need bravado. It says not quarrelsome. This is all in verse 3 still. Not quarrelsome. That person who's looking for a fight, who knows I'm just looking for another argument. I want to try and win another argument. I want to try and dominate in whatever argument it is. But a peacemaker. That's what you're looking for. And it says not a lover of money. Not covetous, not driven by wanting money. If you read here in the New Testament, many men were going into ministry so as to have financial gain. Sadly, when I was overseas once, the guys that I was with were suspicious of a man who came to share the gospel because they thought these guys just want money. Someone who's not greedy, content. Content with where things are at. It's amazing when you read some of the wonderful pastors of old. There's a man in Wales. His church was really rough to him. <laughs> he lived in a... This is Wales. I think Wales winter. In a little, little wooden house with drafts going all through it. He could barely afford fish. But he was content. And he gave himself to loving those people. However harsh they were to him or unloving towards him. He was content. He didn't have to have... He was in that role to serve the Lord and his reward comes from God. None of this business, as we'd be aware of guys getting up to preach with flashy suits or expensive, expensive sneakers or rich watches with a fancy car and even a jet. Not happy with the Toyota. Verse 4 and 5. If the Toyota is acceptable. <laughs> Verse 5. He must manage his own household well. With all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The church is the household of God. It should function like a family. Family shouldn't be without direction or without leadership, but it should be full of love and gentleness and working together. And so this must be a man who doesn't, well, look to his home. Is it organised? Is he always absent? What sort of leadership is he giving in his home? Does he neglect the home? Does he live all his, his life somewhere else and just sort of passes through the home? How does he treat his children? How does he interact with his children? Because in a sense, your home is like a little church, a little gathering by God's grace of believers. We're young who are being instructed in the things of the Lord. Is he teaching the things of God in the home? Verse 6, must not be a recent convert. 
or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Not a recent convert, don't rush someone to a position. Often people are rushed into positions because you're looking at the skills, you're looking at the resume, you're looking at the paperwork and you rush them in and they become puffed up. Start to get a big head, we say. And then it goes ugly. And in time, God again and again will humble men like that or he will remove them. In verse 7, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to the snare of the devil. Outside the church, how do people think about him? Do they respect him? If they've got a little bit of issue with him, is it because of the gospel and the things he's saying and doing? Is it because they just say, he's not a very nice bloke, or I know what he does when others... It's interesting when you find people... I've been in that situation when I was at a shop once. Someone was interacting quite rudely over the counter. They didn't know me. And then a week or two later, I bumped into them in a church that I was visiting, and they were one of the Christians and someone known in the church... Are you the same person here and there? Are you, is there a consistency? Or if I was to talk to people who don't, we don't know, who know you in another setting, how would they talk about you? Is he respected? Because if it's someone who's not like that, the devil will know where to poke. He's good at that. And if you've got a habit of a bad language or cheating or gambling or getting drunk or something, in time you will slip. You won't be able to keep up keeping appearances. 13 of those 15 things are essentially just character. Two of them point to a skills check, the teaching and managing the home, but even the managing home talks about how he does it. Yet sadly, it's not uncommon when advertisements for pastor, elder positions in a church go, you look at what's written there. Able to organise teams, theological education, <clears throat> proven experience to grow a church, on and on you can read. Someone who's really good at motivating people. But those are not where you start. They are not the qualification. You've got to check the man's character. Whoever would be an elder, ask questions. Get to know them. Don't be surprised if the church wants to appoint someone to eldership that it takes time. Especially if it's someone coming from outside the church. Because you've got to know them. People can present well in an interview. People are very good at selling themselves. People are very good at approaching positions in the church in the same way they approach a secular position. They know how to dress. They know how to speak. They know how to come in and be, try and win you over. You've got to know them. Character. And the key one, and I think it's one of the most telling ones, look into his home. Let's spend a little bit more time there. To determine the nature of someone who would be placed in a position as a pastor or an elder, you must look to his relational life. If people, if a man in that position comes and he pulls out his Bachelor of Divinity or his Master of Theology, don't be impressed. Put those things to the side. Start asking him about his home. 
Start asking him about his life there. How is, he, how is he with his wife? There's one pastor I know that when he looks to appoint someone on the ministry team, he, part of the process is to spend time with the wife. That's good. How is he with his children? Do his children respect him? What would, what would you say about dad in this role or at home? Again, is his home orderly or chaotic? Part of the mark of today is everyone wants to do something and be big in something when their own, as the phrase some have used, their own bedroom's falling apart. <laughs> Start in the home. And if you get any pushback about that, that's a, a sign. Move on. <laughs> because in some ways today we do. That's my private life. The way we approach ministry in the church becomes very much how we approach secular roles. This is my work life, that's my private life. What are you asking questions about that? Let's get on with the business here. No. They're not fit to be a pastor if they're trying to keep you out of their home. Because ministry begins in the home, it has to be an overflow of what takes place in a home. A pastor must be transparent about his home life. He should have nothing to hide at his home. And in his role of being a teacher involves being a discipleship and modelling. And part of that is, what is it to be a husband? What is it to be a father? What is it to have a godly home? You've got to have an open home to be hospitable. I think it's sad in a way that often today when pastors or people in positions in a church always catch up with people, it's in a cafe or things like that. Sort of trendy. It's expensive as it adds up. But to meet in someone's home, to invite you into their home, pray that if there are elders that you'll be familiar with their home and what goes on in their home. And while we're still in the area of home, because the home is part of the man's ministry, it's important that his wife's on board. The role of a pastor's wife is, we could say it's been diminished, but it's almost intentionally been diminished in recent years. As we think about the shift in the way women have thought and have been encouraged to think, and men, through feminism, the wife is no longer to be regarded as a helper to her husband. The, this idea of two becoming one, it's okay as long as it doesn't compromise my independence, what I want to achieve. The world would say, your wife, and I went, when I was going through pastoral things, I've got to be careful, one of the questions was about if you're married, what's your wife going to do? She, she must have her own thing. She's got to have her own identity. And so it becomes two people doing two things, rather than how two people can come together in one. And I've heard wives of men who are in ministry making it clear that I will not be caught up in your ministry. That's sad. You want a husband and wife who can be together. A wife who supports that ministry. He will need her in ministry. The home needs to be open. You've got to get rid of that whole, that's the office, that's my home divide. No. The life of a pastor, the ministry of a pastor must just move between the two. There's something beautiful about the way 
pastor's wives of old. It's been forgotten. We must not keep pastoral ministry at the home. And you want a wife who's supportive and says, I will be involved in it. Churches can have their different positions on that, but I think if we're going to do marriage right, if we're going to have a home, if we're going to do things in a biblical way, husband and wife must be together and able to serve alongside each other. That said, we don't go in the unbiblical direction because the Bible doesn't teach it, where if a man becomes a pastor, his wife then becomes a pastor. The Bible doesn't say that. She'll become his helper or supporter in his pastoral role, but she does not have the same responsibilities, the same expectations, the same accountability. The husband is called to be the pastor. She will be his helper in that. Another thing that seems to have happened lately too is pastor this, pastor that. The term pastor is applied to so many different things. Communications pastor, administration pastor, outreach pastor. Everyone gets this title because that's what has become a title. The Bible doesn't do that. The pastor is the overseer, is the shepherd. The, there is the gift of administration. There is the gift of evangelism. There is, the pastor is a role for a particular task. There is the gift of hospitality. So we mustn't put the word pastor in everything. It confuses it. And just once more on this, this whole idea of being a professional. Becoming a pastor is not having a job. It's a calling. More and more you see pastors and people who are involved in leadership in church intentionally building a war between the home and the church. Hebrews tells us, and we'll see this next week, a pastor is a carer of souls. That makes you tremble if you think, God's going to put you in a role to do something like that. A servant of the church. It's amazing the way people can take on roles of pastors and elders in the church and they come. These are my expectations. These are the boundaries I want to set before I start this role. Renumeration, the type of house I might have, all these things, it's terrible. The pastor is a shepherd, an under-shepherd to the shepherd. He's there to serve. Like that pastor in Wales, come what may, if God has placed you there, you serve. You don't just go to the best suburb or the comfiest church. And the pastor's not there to build great websites or have technology and make the church busy. He's there about the spiritual direction of the church and the care of souls. We've got to keep church simple. All those things end up clouding out that central task of caring for souls, making sure we're running the race, we'll finish the race. We all get on with the ministry. A man must be willing to give himself sacrificially and to use his home. Which means we must be wise if things start unravelling. If someone is appointed as an elder and things get difficult in the home, you don't just press on. Because if the man's first priority is to his wife and to his children and to having a healthy home, it must not, his ministry in the church does not and must not come at the expense of his home. We must be willing to step him down. Ideally, he would step down himself and say, this is clearly God is saying, I must focus on this. When you read in Titus, it talks about the spiritual health of his children. 
If his children are being rebellious and aren't walking with the Lord, the Lord's making it clear, there's your ministry. Pray for your children, disciple your children. If the Lord brings all that into order, then step into the life of the church, if that is the way forward. But if things at home are being neglected, he should not persist in the position of an elder. If things at home have changed, that he needs to get home, help him get home. A person does not become an elder in the church, no matter what. Whatever happens, if his wife or his children need him, that must be his priority. Because in the end, you can't be, if you're divided between two things, you're not going to be good in the home or you're not going to be good in the church. And so lastly, let's think about the appointment of an elder. So being a pastor or an elder is not just to someone desires it. We've got here, if someone desires or aspires to the office of overseer, desires a noble task, but that's not enough. Just because I want to be an elder, that doesn't mean you're going to rightly become an elder. We've seen character must be there. Also, too, you don't want to place a man in eldership who doesn't want to be there. That can happen. He must desire it. So God needs to be at work in him with his gifts, with his character, and with his desires to say, I'm willing to move in this direction. But then we must be consistent with the word. So the man and the word. We have all sorts of desires, but our desires must be subject to the word. We have all sorts of gifts, but they must be subject to the word as to how we exercise them. Just because I want to teach or I want to preach does not qualify me to be an elder. The Bible makes it clear. We must pick up the Bible, check with 1 Timothy 3. Is this man consistent with the Bible? Is his home consistent with what the Bible has to say? If it is a woman, the Bible is saying this is not the role in which to minister like this. There are other roles to minister. It must be consistent with the teaching of the Bible. But there's a third, and that's the church. So there's the issue of the man himself. We've got to have all the boxes ticked with the Bible. And then the church has to affirm and say, yes. It's not a man just to, enough for a man to convince everyone, say, no, the church must say, we affirm it. Timothy is there. He's got this role to assess. Consider the men in the church. Consider what the Lord is saying in his word through Paul to him. And he's got to say, yes. It needs to be affirmed by those in the church with the insight and the oversight. If a man is not affirmed by the church, he needs to be humble and just seek God and wait or know that God's called him to something else. And typically in the church, those who are weighing these things up will be the leadership or people who are mature in the faith. If there's an existing eldership, often they will pay a key part in weighing up if someone's to become an elder. As they look at the man, the life of the man and what God said in his word. If the man, the word, and the church are not in agreement, you don't press forward. You wait. God calls churches to have elders and deacons. But you don't just make it happen. You wait until God raises up the appropriate elders and deacons. Otherwise, you get yourself into all sorts of strife. The man, the word, and the church need to come together. If chapel streets to appoint elders, they need to consider the lives of the men, the character of men, the gifts of the men. Then they have to open up the Bible 
and make sure everything the Bible says is right about being appointed as an elder are ticked. And then the church itself or those appointed by the church will say, yep, it's okay. We support it. And the typical way that once someone is appointed to be an elder will be set apart is through the laying on of hands. When Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.14, was set apart, the council of elders came and laid hands upon him. Paul has left Timothy here in Ephesus to appoint elders and he's told in 1 Timothy 5.22, don't rush to lay on hands. The laying on of hands is the biblical means and method of passing on. Once elders are appointed in the church, they will typically be the ones who will be given the task and the responsibility and the accountability for those upon whom they lay their hands. What do we do? And I think this is something to think about. We don't have an official eldership. But I think it's important for us to remember that as a church in the New Testament, we're never called to be isolationist. Yes, we understand our autonomy in the sense that God will gift us and equip us so that we can function as a church. But the Bible never says for each church to go off and do their own thing. There's to be fellowship among the churches. We see where trouble came. They had the assembly that took place in Jerusalem. We see that when letters are written, they go from one church to the other. They're working together as churches. Even though each has their own elders and deacons, there's a fellowship. As a church, we belong to what's now called the Baptist Association of Churches. That's good. Got a friend who's a Baptist minister and an independent Baptist. He's part of a fellowship called the Fellowship of Bible-Believing Churches of Australia. So though each church is independent or autonomous, it's part of a fellowship. That's good, that's healthy, that keeps us accountable and it shows that we're not alone. I wonder if a way forward for us to think was that if we're to appoint elders in the church, that whether through a church that has elders that we affirm as a Bible-believing church or through the fellowship that we're a part of, that elders through them come and lay hands as part of the process. That shows that we're belong that shows we're a part of something that shows that we're moving together that's something to think about but when it comes and essentially look this week the qualifications for an elder remember 13 of the 15 were about character and then you get into his understanding of the bible and then you get into his home Make sure those things are in place. Make sure that we're sticking to what the Bible says and as a church that needs to be affirmed. And if those things are in place, and then to set apart. And then once that's in place, then by God's grace, that'll be a blessing to the church and actually spur us on in moving forward and being active in ministry and as a protector and as servants to serve. So next week, I want us to really zoom in on the role or the task. What is the work that an elder is to do in the life of the church? Because being able to teach is very broad as to what that should look like practically and as it works out. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, please keep us from overcomplicating things. Please keep us from doing what is right in our own sight or what the world thinks we should do. 
But Father, we pray that you would give us the faith like children to open your word, to read it, and to trust in you and to put it into practice. And so, Father, please go before us as a church. Grow us, strengthen us, and Lord, equip each one of us for the ministry you have called us to, that we might be the body of Christ, his hands and feet, wherever you place us in this community. In Jesus' name, amen.